My strategy is send them my music before they send me theirs. Welcome to Clock Encounter. I'm James Wiseman, and with me is Ryan Young. So Ryan, today we're going to do a new Jammer Diaries. We have a little bit of a podcast update. Then we're going to talk about our nail-making adventures, answer some listener questions, try out a new experimental segment that someone offer to us. And finally, we're going to start a new series about routines and how to build them. So to start out with the new Jammer Diaries. So Ryan, we just got back from my wedding, which was very great. It was really great to have you there and some other people really near and dear to my heart. But I understand that you have a little bit of a gravelly voice. Let's hear it. (laughs) That's correct. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I talked the most I've ever talked in one day. On, at your I wedding. certainly have never seen you talk so much in your life, but hopefully that means your ability and interest in talking a lot is growing because we have a podcast and I need you to talk as much as possible. I know. <laughs> I was wondering if it's like the equivalent of your Dota updates. It's like, what is my social skill MMR currently? I do think you're a sub 1000 MMR at talking, but we're making steady progress. And I think you you had a boot camp at the wedding. You got a lot of practice in, and I think your talking MMRs is going up rapidly. But speaking of my wedding, we were gone for a whole week, which meant my new jam scene was without its leader for a little bit. And I always get really nervous when I go out of town because I feel like they don't play as much without me. And sometimes I worry when it's all the new players and maybe they can't throw as well. But this time I came back and today I had a jam with Will and Ray and they were both easily 30% better than they were last time we played. And so I've learned that I need to go out of town more (laughs) because they're making the most progress without me. Now, I don't know if that's because taking a break can sometimes be helpful. It's something I've gone back and forth on and maybe we should talk about in the future or that they were practicing more on their own without me. But it was really amazing, especially from Will because he's one of the better players in Durham already. And I think today was the first day where I had those, there's not really a better word for it, but this sounds more negative than I mean it, but I had those inklings of jealousy where I was like, oh my God, he's better than me. Like just these tiny (laughs) moments where he would do something just so perfectly. They were just flashes of the player he'll be and it was terrifying. So watch out for Will. And then this is the first day that Ray looked like form was part of his calculus. So he wasn't just doing all of his normal moves, but he was doing them in this really deliberate way where he just looked more beautiful and just purposeful. It was really impressive. So that's my my new Jammer Diary update. Any thoughts though on whether taking breaks helps you learn faster or is it just something that we imagine happens or it's that our creativity gets better? I think it actually, wait, for one, first thing is who took the break? All, everybody, you and Will and your new player? I'm not totally sure. I think they were probably practicing on their own, but I think it was probably the most days they had between jams. And I certainly felt a little bit rejuvenated, especially on my throw. Because I pretty much play every day for many hours, just throwing as much spin as I can to help everybody learn. And so I felt better just because I could throw and it wasn't so exhausting. But they certainly were playing better at every level. I see. No, I 
I think it helps both ways. You leaving and, or no, yeah, you taking a break and them taking a break, but in different ways. So what are you thinking? Like when you, yeah, so when you left and they jammed without you, it's like a different dynamic. And I think they have, there's, I think there's several things. The first one is, I think you can be a crutch sometimes. And they were playing without that crutch and had to like learn something new. And that's contributed. But I think a bigger part is the pressure. So when you're there, there's like a different kind of pressure on the jam. And they could play in a different way without that pressure. And like that, I think they learned a bunch of new things while you were gone. That makes a lot of sense. And I wonder about the pressure thing, because I think most people would assume you were saying, and maybe this is what you're saying, that when I'm there, there's pressure to perform better. But I actually think in this case, it would be the opposite, which is that when I'm there, I take the pressure off of them of making it a fun jam. But when I'm gone, they have to make sure that they contribute enough to the jam that it feels good. Because if you have a jam where no one can really get it going and everyone's dropping, which happens a lot when you have brand new players, it can feel really bad and people have to step it up and find ways to make the jam work. Whereas when I'm there, I'm the one pulling the levers to make sure that it doesn't drag too much and there's enough positive emotions to keep it going. But I bet you Will had to do that when I wasn't there and that probably improved his game a lot. Yeah, that was like the crutch you offered. Exactly. To the, yeah. Interesting. So that makes a lot of sense. I'm going to have to think more about that. So the next thing we want to talk about, we have a podcast update. This is mostly a joke, but we received an email from some podcast analytics company that informed us that we are currently the number two podcast in Norway in the performing arts category, which means either podcasts are wildly unpopular in Norway or Norwegians hate the performing arts because it seems impossible that we're the number two podcast in the performing arts. But we're also somehow, and I don't know, these analytics might be bogus. I think we're the number 188th podcast in performing arts in the United States, according to some random person that emailed us, for whatever that's worth. <laughs> so e- That's pretty is- good. <laughs> Are there, maybe there's only like 181 performing arts So podcasts. I definitely had that thought, but... If that's true, then kudos to us because I think people assume we're on the difficulty sports side of the art versus sport debate, but clearly we're on the art side because we're the only performing arts podcast in the United States. Otherwise, how could we have such a good rating? But I just thought that was pretty cool. And even if it's bogus stats, at least it lifted up our egos to make us want to keep venturing on. Okay, last thing before we get to listener questions. So because we have all these new freestylers in Durham, I've had a bit of a nail problem, which is that we got a lot of new players. They need a lot of nails. They lose a lot of nails. It's hard to keep up with. So I realized I had to get into the nail making business. And I've been using traditional dental acrylic techniques, but kind of the lowest grade, cheapest version of it. And here I was feeling a little bit guilty, like, oh, no, I hope I don't offend the people that are already in the nail making business. And hopefully I don't do too much damage because I'm basically going to put everyone out of business by just giving away nails for free because I think it's important to the sport. 
And then you come along and you immediately undercut me with an even cheaper, faster, more readily available nail technology. So I've already become obsolete because you, instead of using traditional dental acrylic, have figured out good techniques for making 3D printed nails. Yeah, so three weeks ago, I finally bought a 3D printer. I've wanted one for a decade. And it's just sitting on my dining room table right now. And it's surprisingly, like the parts, the process was like way different than I thought. But How so? Last night, okay. Yeah, last night I got my first print of 40 nails to finish. Like one of them was damaged, but like 39 nails without any attention. It's like a huge milestone. That's pretty good. And do they feel playable? Do you think, would you ever use them at a tournament? I think I will, I'll have to test it out. But in my initial testing, they do feel usable. So the goal, I think we have different purposes for our nails. So the purpose of the 3D printed nail is something you can give away for free and doesn't cost me a lot of like money or time is the purpose of the 3D printed nail. So it doesn't have to like perform at the same level as your nails. Mm-hmm. So I think we're off after different audiences. Yeah, to be fair, my nails are also to give away and I expect to not see many of them ever again. But that's not because I think they're cheapo nails that should be given away. It's because I have no other way I know how to make them. But I'm actually (laughs) optimistic that you will just send me a few hundred of them and those will be the first set of nails I give to people. And then once they're a little bit further along, I'll give them a set that I made. But I still think even the way I make them, they feel just a hair worse than a nail made by Matt Gothier, Dan Yarnell, or Ollie in Italy. So I'm not 100% of what their nails are yet. I think maybe I'll be able to get there, but we'll see. But one other question I have, because I think there's a lot of things in freestyle where freestylers get really nitpicky about them and specific in particular, but maybe they don't matter at all. So I certainly put a lot of, I guess it's all relative, but I care a lot about the nails that I wear and making sure they fit well and that I like the shape of them. But at the same time, I think once I'm jamming, I never think about my nails and I probably wouldn't be able to tell the difference between a nail that I think is really good and a nail that I'm borrowing from somebody because there wasn't another nail. So do you think if I, if you blindfolded me and put your nails, your 3D printed nails on my fingers, would I even be able to tell the difference with the 3d printed nail for sure really it is significantly slower and you can tell that you can like the easiest way to that i know that it's not as fast is because it gets dirty like has anyone ever used a nail where it has like enough friction that it gets dirty fair i do sometimes i think nails can get dirty at the beach especially if the glue is close enough to the edge of the nail but otherwise i agree i i don't I don't really think about my nails getting dirty. Although I do know some people like Tom Leitner, I think they do kind of polish their nail before they use it and they'll sort of rub it against their shirt or something to give it a little bit of a shine. But I don't know if that actually does anything. Yeah, we'll have to experiment. Now, but part of it with a 3D printed nail is the way the printer works, it puts it on layer by layer. It's not like a mold or anything. And so you can feel these little ridges on the nail. And so that presumably at least feels different, if not affects the performance. 
Yeah, this is one thing I learned. Making the actual model of the nail was pretty easy. It took like 30 minutes. But like figuring out how to print it and like what orientation it should be on the bed or uh, what's not intuitive is the bottom and the top of every model is rough. Mm. So like where any part of the nail that touches the disc can't be on the top or the bottom of the print, which is unintuitive and like not an easy problem to solve. I like print them at this weird like, I don't know, like modern art angle. <laughs> so when you were explaining that to me, I actually thought this was really cool. And this is a great example of why it's so nice to have someone like you in the sport. Because I think most people, you would put the angle of the ridge in some normal perpendicular parallel pattern. You know, you would say the nail is oriented this way and the ridges are going to be straight across it. But you thought, well, obviously the part we care about is the part where the disc contacts the nail. And so I'm going to do whatever I can to get the ridges away from that, even if they're at some weird cockamamie angle to the nail itself, which I think was really smart. Yeah. I think all 3D printing is like that. I'm just like learning something new every day. Got it. So the last thing I want to say about nails, and I didn't expect to talk about this that long, but hey, that's what this podcast is for. So many years ago, Daniel Nell created a prototype nail out of a material that I believe is called lithium disilicate. And it's supposed to be a far better material than dental acrylic. But the problem is it costs like twenty to $50,000 for a machine that can create them. And I think he only had access to it temporarily. So I have these two nails and I essentially never use them because they're so precious. But I did some very unscientific testing with them when I first got them. And one of the things I remember doing was throwing disc at angles and with roughly the same amount of spin over and over and over again, and then trying different nail types to see how long I could hold the rim delay before it ran out of spin. And there's tons of variants. I'm sure it wasn't all that scientific. I had to think about when and how often I recycle it, whatever. But given those limitations, I found that the lithium disilicate was about 10% faster than acrylic and acrylic was like five or 10% faster than bone. That's from my memory. I could be wrong, but that was kind of the order. And on the one hand, I wouldn't have known that just from playing with them. It didn't feel that much different, but that's a lot. I mean, 10%, I don't know if this translates really, but if you think about how hard it is to go from throwing 900 RPM to 990 RPM, it's a huge difference. And again, I think there's some weird exponential versus linear linear like scales here so it might not translate in that sense but if you could get 10 percent more value just from your nail material that could have a pretty big impact on your game i think yeah i think it matters more the better you are because like the better you are the more precise you are and the less spin you need to do your moves so like five percent means more when you're dealing with less spin at the end of like a big throw. Ugh, that brings me to a topic for another podcast. I can't remember if I mentioned this or not, but I do have a theory that the best players have in some ways a lot more trouble and worse conditions. And part of it is what you just said. The margins you work with as a top player are so much smaller than the, the margins you play with as a not top player. And really the only reason we say top players deal better with bad conditions is when top players are smart enough to dumb down their game for those conditions. It's like if you just stop trying to be a top player and just try to be an average player, that's the only time you start to look good in bad conditions. But it's because you're not doing any of the stuff that makes you a top player 
anyways, more on that another time. Okay, so let's go to listener questions. So this question, I'm going to keep anonymous just because we don't know whether the emailer wanted to remain anonymous. Just a reminder, if you want to be anonymous, let us know. But if you're okay with us using your name, just tell us because I think it's more fun when we can use people's name. names. So this player asked, what should you do when you feel intimidated in a jam? And what should you do when others express that they feel intimidated by you? So Ryan, start us off. Okay. So I think like the majority of what I'm going to say is just about communication and having good communication just kind of fixes all of these problems because I think what happens is the, on either side, people have expectations and when the expectations mismatch, that's when there are problems, mm -hmm. but you can always say I am new and I'm coming into this jam and that kind of just sets expectations of everybody in the jam. And it goes the other way as well. Like I can go into a jam and be like, I'm just here for a casual jam. And that can set expectations the other way. Mm, I like, I like more the latter idea, especially if you're like a high level player and you're joining a jam of less skilled players of communicating right away. Like, Hey, like, let's have fun. This is just a relaxed situation. Don't panic or something like that. The first yeah, I think that always works in that direction. The other one is a little more tricky, yeah. but it still helps. So maybe we're not the right people to answer the first question, which again is about what to do when you feel intimidated, because it's probably been a while since either of us was particularly intimidated. Although there's definitely times where for different reasons I can feel intimidated in a jam. But I do think it's almost never wrong to ask before you join a jam especially if you're picking the right moment to join it. So let's start there. If you're joining a jam with players that are better than you, first good thing you can do is wait for a couple drops before you go in. You don't want to go in when they're getting really, really hot. But if there's a couple drops, then I think it's okay to go up and say, hey, can I join this jam? And I've never heard of somebody saying no. Maybe I can think of one instance but they're probably going to say yes. So one that already gives you some clearance, like even though that's a little bit of theater, you're going to ask the question knowing what the answer is. Just the fact that you ask it puts everybody at ease that you're respecting the jam and understand that you might not be the best player joining this jam. The other thing is you can kind of get a read on how the people answer that question. I think they're going to say yes, no matter what, <laughs> but if they're like, yeah, come on in, then you should feel totally at ease because they want you to be in there. If they're a little bit more like, okay, then you can either step back and say, you know, I'm not going to join this jam or you can go in, see how it goes. And if you feel like you're dropping, just take a seat. That's totally fine. And that's, that's normal. Another thing, especially when people are excited, I think people underestimate how often top players playing together want a newer player to join. And maybe this is just a me thing, but I feel like you share it. But there's a lot of times where top players are stressed because they have to play at such a high level with each other. And there's just a lot of exactly. pressure on each other. And it's nice to have a less skilled player kind of keep it more relaxed and keep it more casual. I always think about this whenever people come up to me when I'm in that situation, I'm always like, oh, thank God we were going to kill each other if you didn't come in here because we're just going to be trying <laughs> the craziest stuff and and we need someone to kind of tone it down. And there can be, especially 
at least in my experience, like with male players, there can be a little bit of like alpha male stuff, not to make it too gendered or anything, but it can definitely calm that down when newer players come in. So all this is to say that newer players should know that sometimes their presence is really welcome in a high level jam. And I guess one other aspect of that is it's sort of, this sounds so egotistical, but there's an egotistical element of the sport. It's kind of nice to be appreciated by newer players. It's like when you and I play together, we're not that fired up about what we're doing. We've seen it a million times. We can both do the same things, but when someone else is in there and they're all excited because they haven't seen this stuff in person before that can make our jam more enjoyable. Mm-hmm. All right. So we have a chance. We can set a new standard and be like, when is the two of us just out on the field waiting for someone to bust our jam? How can we signal that that's what we want? I do think there are things that people do naturally that make a lot of sense. Like if you want to be the busted jam, you should be where all the people are hanging out. You, if okay. you see the jam that's way off in the distance, probably leave that jam alone. There's probably a reason they went off in the distance. But when that jam is front and center, go in that jam. They are inviting people to join it. If it's you and me, I feel like I'm always looking around. <laughs> like whenever out of the distance. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing, but I wonder how hard that is to pick up on as the from the sideline. If you see me jamming and I make eye contact with you, join our jam. That's that's why <laughs> I'm looking at you. So I think I think that's definitely a part of it. And as you play more, you'll have a better sense of who the people are who want to jam. But another thing too is the people that are the most sensitive about, oh, I'm a top player and I don't want to spend time playing with horse players. Those people aren't jamming very much. Those are the people who are at the tournament resting and preparing and, you know, stretching and doing whatever they do. Like they're not jamming very much. Most people, when they're jamming, the fact, the very fact that they're jamming, especially at a tournament, is an indication that they are looking to have fun and are open to other people joining. That's my personal opinion. And look, if you get it wrong sometimes and you annoy somebody, like that's on them. Like if someone's annoyed that you're in their jam, they can leave themselves and go start a new jam. And that's fine. Yeah. Okay. I agree with that. Yeah. One other last like element of that, because we didn't touch it, is I do think there are things you can do in the gym to maybe feel less intimidated. And I think we've covered these a lot, so I won't go into them. But all the things that help you jam well are important. Catch early, catch often. The Jake Coleman expression. Keep it really simple. Don't try to, for lack of a better word, show off. I always hate that idea showing off because what is freestyle except showing off i mean the whole thing is doing cool stuff but stay within your comfort zone and the jam where you might feel intimidated at least at the beginning like show them that you're going to contribute to the jam you're not going to get in the way you're going to keep it at least at the same level or not drag it down too much and then if it feels comfortable and it's going well then you can start going a little bit more outside your comfort zone into your more difficult moves Anything else to add to that? I think we should give numbers because like that all makes sense to me. But I think it's like if you catch three in a row, you should go for your hard, fancy once a jam catch. Like it's like a video game. You like charge it up. And so let's say you catch three of your easy catches in a row. Now you're allowed to do that one jam, one move to try and like fire up the jam. I think that's a great rule. And I think of it almost more in the negative sense shows something about my personality, but certainly whether it's you or the other freestylers after someone drops it 
that's the last time to be trying your hard move. So be aware, not just about what you're doing, but what everyone else is doing. So you almost have to think of like you are inhabiting everybody else. If there's three drops before it comes to me, even I think, oh, I need to chill out on this one and reel us back in because we just had four drops. And I think about this a lot playing with new players is usually there's four drops so that it comes back to me <laughs> and I would like to do something outside of my comfort zone because maybe I caught my last five and want to do something more exciting. But it doesn't matter that I caught five in a row. What matters is that before me, there are four drops. And if there's a fifth drop, plus the four that are going to happen after I drop it, it's going to be too <laughs> many drops in a row. So just kind of be aware of that. And I think that can really help. And you'll find that even the curmudgeons will start to loosen up when they see you making the right decisions. Cool. Okay. But I do want to okay. touch a little bit on what to do when people feel intimidated by you. Cause me and you have talked about this a lot. Like I think there are times where we feel like we're intimidating other people and we don't really mean to or know what to do. Now, we just said the thing about like if we're playing nearby and we're looking at you, you should join us. But in the jam, you're already in a jam with us. What are the things that we should be doing so people don't feel intimidated? Oh, so like as the like the best person in the jam, like what should we be doing? Yeah, because the thing to I make other people feel. Yeah, included? I try to do a good job of being the best cheerleader, but sometimes that can kind of backfire. So, for instance, one of my new players, Ben, although he's been playing a few years now. He was kind of struggling at the beginning and there was a few too many times in a row where I said like, nice throw when he threw like a good throw and he was like, stop <laughs> saying nice throw. Like that's your way of saying I haven't done anything else well. And so you're complimenting my throw and they're going to be an, okay. Okay. okay yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> I think it's very common for the player to be that's intimidated to stand on the edges. But one thing people should be doing is filtering them back into the middle and just telling them go back to the middle of the jam. Well, that's definitely great if you feel intimidated. That's like the Jake Gauthier motto, which I think is so right, which is you're cowering and so you're going to the edges because you're kind of trying to stay out of the way, but no one can help you on the edge. But if you're in the middle, you have people flanking you so that they can fix mistakes that you make. But I think you, we should be telling new players to go into the middle. Like we should be telling people to do Got it more often. Got it. What do you feel about jam directing? Because I think there can be a really negative version of that, which I see a lot. But I do think there's some healthy version and maybe it's just hard to do. Now, I do it a lot in Durham and I feel like it's within my rights to do that because we do have a new scene and I am teaching them how to play. I don't do that outside of Durham. Someone can send us an email if I'm wrong about that. But... Like that would be an example of telling someone, hey, go in the middle because you'll have an easier time there. But I don't know how that would be received by people. Like, when can I say like, hey, I'm about to set it to you, go get it. Like, I wouldn't do that for you because you can see by what I'm doing that I'm about to set it to you. But I might do that for a new player or should I do that for a new player? Yeah, I think over instruction is better. I think it's better to err on the over instruction side. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Like you got to kind of gauge the audience and their skill level. But I think that makes sense. Is there anything else we can think of that would that we can do to make people feel less intimidated? I try to be chill about my own drops and laugh about them or kind of self-deprecate a little bit. Nice. To kind of put people at ease. Because I think 
a lot of people, whether they're good or bad, can get really frustrated when they're not playing well. And that that negative energy is probably bad, period. But it's definitely bad when you're the top player, right? Like if you're the new player and you get kind of mad at yourself, it's almost like, oh, look at them. Like they're struggling. But if you're the top <laughs> player and you're getting mad at yourself, people are like, that guy is such a jerk. Like what's up? Like, <laughs> this should be a whole other conversation about like the things that are no longer acceptable, like once you're a top player. And I think that's one of them. And some of the things that become unacceptable, I think, are unfair. But I think that one is fair. Like, if you're a really good player... Okay, it's the role yeah, model. Yeah, you have this... You pressure. Have to, you have model. to set an example. Exactly. Like, you're the role model. Mm-hmm. You need to be lighthearted about it. You need to be chill about it. And you need to stay good-natured when the other players are messing up. Because if you're just silent and keep going, the other people are going to feel like you're judging them or upset with them and... That's not a really good environment. One other thing is I have have I have had the experience where people kind of say like, oh, I better get out of here when they don't play very well. And I will say most of the time, oh, no, like, don't worry about it. Come on in. Like, we need you here and try to make clear that there's no pressure on you. And then I also take responsibility for everything bad that happens, even if it's really not my fault. So almost, almost <laughs> to the point where it's become meaningless. So again, I probably overdo it. Every time I give one of the new Duke people a perfect set and they drop it, I'm like, oh, no, that's on me. That was too high. <laughs> it's like, no, it wasn't. But uh, <laughs> I'm just going to find wh- whatever microscopic thing could have been better about it. I'll say, oh, that's on me. That's on me. Um, okay. But I think that's a good, uh, a good okay. answer. I have one okay. more Hit thing. me. I love it. So this is before the okay. game. I think, okay, so it goes both ways. Like, as the better player, when you start a jam, I think you can pick whoever you want, and you don't necessarily have to pick, like, the next best player to start a jam with. You can pick someone who may feel intimidated, but you're, like, automatically giving them a right to yeah. be there. And I think it would be a big confidence I just, That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I do agree that you set a certain expectation by who you start your jam with, and... Just in general, if you start a jam with another top player by yourself, it's going to be hard to attract people. So if you want to play with another top player, grab a third just right away to make it a little bit more inviting. Mm -hmm. I think it also works the other way as well, which has happened to me where like at the party, someone will ask, like a newer player will say, tomorrow it would be nice if we could jam. Yeah. And like that's a way for like the newer player to make the initiative in like a safe way. That's a great point. And that's another way going back to the, one of the first things I said about asking to join the jam, you can basically start that conversation well before the jam is underway to one, feel out the person. You know, if you go up to someone and you say, Hey, I'd love to jam with you. And if they're like, Oh, okay. All right. Then maybe you leave them be, but if they say, Oh yeah, I would love to jam with you. I've been wanting to play with you. I think that makes it easier. Now, I definitely do the reverse of that, too, where I go up to a lot of people, especially if I've never played with them before, and I try to say, like, hey, let's have a jam this weekend. And that's kind of my way of signaling, hey, at some point, you're going to see me freestyling, and I want you to come in and, and join us. I say all these things, but I hope someone's going to write us in and be like, actually, James, in 2013, I tried to do whatever, and you were really dismissive. I, I'm, I'm sure there are instances where I've unintentionally <laughs> or intentionally done the wrong thing. I... I don't think I've ever kicked anyone out of a jam and I can think of a few times where I probably got visibly frustrated with somebody, but it's, it's, I generally try to be pretty open. Okay. 
I'm going to skip the other questions because I don't want to go too long, but we'll save them for later. But I, I like that question. I thought that was a really good one. Okay, so do you want to introduce the segment idea? So we made a promise that if people sent us a segment idea, no matter how wacky it was, we would try it at least once. And I'm okay saying his name. I don't can't imagine why he would mind. Arthur Coddington, the number one drafted, number one ranked player, sent us in a segment idea. And do you want to describe it for everybody? Yes, it's called What Would Matt Gothier Do? And it's basically, we have these situations that are fictional and we speculate what would Matt do in those situations. Okay, now as crazy as, as, crazy as this is, there are people out there who don't know who Matt Gothier is. So will you describe for everybody who he is and why we talk about him so much? Yeah, so it's like when James goes to sleep at night and he's dreaming of freestyle, it would be Matt Gothier playing. That is so true, Ryan, and that's a great way to describe it. And I will say I have essentially waking dreams sometimes where like there are moments, I have this with other people, but especially Matt, where I do something and like I am Matt Gothier for just a little bit. And I just have this feeling where I'm like, <laughs> I know that's what Matt would do. And that's what it felt like when he did those things. And they bring me so much joy. And I basically spent my whole freestyle career just looking for those Matt Gothier moments. So in other words, he's an amazing player. He doesn't play as much anymore. Injuries caught up to him. Many, many time world champion. I think on my personal list, he's top three greatest player of all time, maybe number one. So he's a beloved icon. Okay, so you wrote up some questions, and then I think we should just go back and forth on what we think Matt Gothier would do. So why don't you read the first one? Okay. So Matt has spent several weeks building a routine with his teammates for the World Championships. This is the finals round, and they're about to go out, and the conditions are a blustery 8 to 20 miles per hour. This is, a, <laughs> what would this is such a hard one to start with. And I'm not sure that I have the right answer. And we should add that we might try to bring Matt Gothier on at some point to let us know if we were right about these. But there's two options here, obviously. First is, damn the conditions. You're going to do the routine. Doesn't matter if the wind's high. You're confident enough in your skill set that you're going to go for it. The other option is sunk cost. Doesn't matter how much time we put into the routine, the best thing for us to do now, given these conditions, is to jam and not worry about the routine. Just give it up, let it go. Worse to do a terrible performance just because you're so dedicated to the routine than just let it go. Now, I'm actually leaning towards the latter that I think Matt Gothier would just say, forget the routine, let's work with the conditions that we have. But I'm going to add a little bit of nuance to it which is I think Matt would check in with his partners and he would do what he thought made them the most comfortable. And I think the reason he would do this is because, and this is, I think, something I adapted from him, whether we talked about it or I just sort of picked this up by his example. I do think when you're the best player on your team, you have to be the flexible one. So you can't be the diva because you're the best. Instead, you have to say, I am the best able to make the adjustment to you. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to adjust to what 
whatever you need. And a good example of that is like people have very different warm up routines before they play. And some people are very regimented. Some people are loose. Some people want to play with you. Some people want to play by themselves. Some people want to do run through. Some people don't. So there's like a million <laughs> different ways that people prepare for the finals of the world championship. And Matt will just be like, what do you need? And we'll do that. So that I think Matt would probably ask the partners, but I think Matt is very flexible. And I think he would just say, what is the best, what is the best thing to do given these conditions? Like if you were playing by himself, you would say he, under, I think he understands the economic theory of sunk cost and would be like, forget it, ditch the routine. <laughs> let's do it. Agree. Disagree. I agree. When I was writing it, I was thinking of what you just described there where he would check in. And I think let's say there was a bet on the line and he needed to win. I think he would have no problem calling off the routine and being like our best chance to win. Like he is smart enough to identify like what the best chance to win is, which is not doing the routine. Yeah. And he would explain that to his teammates. Yeah. Agreed. But yeah. Like it would be tailored to the situation. There's not enough context here. So Okay, good. I'm glad we agree on that one. That was a tricky one. So I'll ask you the next one. Matt is getting ready to go out to jam and there's a single jam of five on the field. Okay. So I think there's, I've, I've actually seen this happen and I think there's a couple of things Matt has done. Like first it depends who the five are in mm -hmm. the jam and he could just go and bust it and try and make it hot with six, which is very hard because of your theory of the more people in the jam, the more complex mm -hmm. it gets. But I've also seen Matt take his two liter water bottle and walk like, 500 feet down the beach and just jam by himself until there's like a more like prime opportunity to join the jam. I agree. So I was leaning towards the ladder because I think I've seen him do that more. And I think he knows that if he starts jamming, it will not take long at all for other people to get in on that. But I like your point about it depends on who's there. But I actually think it's a U curve. So I think if it's brand new players, he'll join. Because what's it to them if there's a six person, they're going to be so excited that he's joining that it's all positive for that jam. Mm. I think if it's a jam with highly, highly skilled players, I think he'll also join under the premise that everyone can deal with the extra person being added to this jam. I'm amazing. He's not cocky like that, but I'm putting those, I'm, I'm adding <laughs> those words on top of that. That's my editorializing. And so he would know that he could go in there and make that jam awesome. But I think if it was just a random grab bag jam with high skilled players, lower skilled players, he would leave that one alone. Five is already big enough and start his own. Yep. Okay. Okay. M Next Let's one. Let's do it. Okay. So we're at the beach and someone is throwing downwind to Matt. The standard throw, you make the nose really steep so it comes in nice and soft. And just before it gets to Matt, someone cuffs it into devil's angle. So it's now the opposite direction where the nose is facing down and the disc is coming in at throwing speed with a downwind nose angle. Okay. What so the Matt basic do? premise is Daniel. Daniel. I've mentioned Daniel because he's about to come up. <laughs> Matt is getting a horrible angle and he has to figure out what to do yeah. with it. So I had a Matt Gothier moment recently where it was just like I described where I did something and I was like, oh man, like that is exactly what Matt would have done, which is... After my wedding, there was a day where it was just Pavel, Daniel, and I left, and we went to go try the beach because the wedding was near a beach. 
but it was very cold. The wind was 20, 25 miles an hour. There were lots of kite surfers there. And the sand was about three inches thick, soft sand. So the conditions were basically unplayable. But we had nothing better to do, so we were trying to play. So Daniel, at one point, the disc had flown up onto the dune. And so Daniel's throwing me almost like a disc golf drive down upwind, but downhill, weird dune throw. And so he throws it to me, and the angle's completely weird and off, and it starts to flip. And I don't know what I did or what possessed me. It was obviously the ghost of Matt Gothier, even though he's alive. I just, like, slammed my hand into the disc from like from i hit i hit the dome i just almost like slapped the top of the disc and like contorted my hand in some way and the disc just (laughs) instantly just flipped perfectly flat into the wind just an angle that was a gift from a god and it's one of those classic moments where the conditions are bad and all i did was just hit the disc and pavel and daniel were just like "Ooh!" like there was an awe was like this is the <laughs> best move any of us had done and all it was was just an angle correction but that is what matt gothier would do if you had if matt is dealing with a bad angle he would do some bizarre just like there would be a loud sound you wouldn't know exactly what had happened but suddenly the disc would be perfect like both matt and jake have this power brush they do where they almost hit the disc downward and it just perfectly flats the disc out flattens the disc out sometimes it uses two hands so i think i think he would do that or similar but different way of getting there he would do some incredibly delicate light almost benign touch that would also (laughs) get it back into a perfect angle but like that's what he would do he certainly wouldn't just grab the disc out of the air because it was a bad throw or he wouldn't try to do something foolish. He would do something really cool to fix the angle. Yeah, I totally agree. Matt like taught me. I'm like, that's the first time I've even seen a downward tip is Matt Gothier doing it. Yeah, I mean, not many people do that. And not many people approach the disc from the top. Like that kind of weird. It's almost like the opposite of a scoop brush. Although sometimes it can be kind of like a scoop brush. But he and Jake especially have this incredible angle fixing abilities so i like that one okay here's a good question i have no idea on this one what would matt do if someone threw him ud counter and a counter only jam so just as a throwback we were talking about how we had a counter only jam and Lori threw us ud counter and we were like no 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 no. ud counter is basically clock you can't you can't throw ud counter and the counter jam but the question here is, what would Matt do? So what do you think? I think he would instantly recognize that that is not a counter legitimate throw in the counter only jam. So Matt was the person that told me that counter UD is just upside down clock. Like he's the person that told me that. Got phrase. it. So that makes sense. The only, but would he just grab it out of the air and say, uh, no, 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 that's not counter and move on? Because I think what he might do yeah. is he would treat it like it was right side up counter it's like he would go on a counter brush run upside down keeping it he would juice it yes. first to start the combo like he would do the most countery counter thing you could do with the ut counter there would be not a hint of clock i think that would be the middle ground but i could imagine him just saying it's not counter and grabbing it out of the air <laughs> yeah i'm not actually sure but okay I do like the idea of them treating it like a counter throw. Yeah. Okay, what's the next one? 
Okay. So someone throws a roller so on the ground where you try and kick it up to Matt, but both his feet are in boots. So not like cowboy boots, like the medical boot when you get ankle surgery and you have to wear like this giant cast on your leg. So this is a great question. And I have a feeling you have a real life experience with this. So I know when I first started freestyling, Matt had maybe a month or two left in a boot after he broke his leg or something. And I love to talk about this time in Matt's freestyle career to new players. When Matt was wearing a boot on his leg, so his leg was totally immobilized, he was still the best player in the world. He was doing double spinning catches. He was crashing and burning. The boot was barely a hindrance. And I actually think in a lot of ways it made him even better because he he learned how to play. He learned how to do all the things he could already do much more slowly, which I think benefits you as you get older and you can't move as fast. So he, like anyone with a good growth mindset, found a way to make the boot, make him a better player. So I think not knowing what real life story you're pinning into here, that he had no problem just as if he didn't have a boot, kicked that disc up, got it into a brushing run, and just did what he always did. Yep, that's exactly what happened. So you were talking earlier about you do the, he would do the really loud sound or like the really delicate but not in touch. It was definitely like the sound you've never heard before. (laughs) Just like plastic cast parts just slamming into the plastic (laughs) disc and it just flying up perfectly somehow. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that sounds about right. Okay, this last one is a very weird one. I don't know what you were thinking about here. Probably another real life story. (laughs) So the last one is Matt buys an antique analog clock, but after replacing the batteries, he realizes the hands move counterclockwise. I mean, I think he keeps it. (laughs) Yeah, I I think he keeps it and he reverses all the numbers. So it (laughs) like goes backwards, but it's still Ah, correct. Ah, I like that. So you look at the wall... And it, I guess it would go, I can't even imagine, but it, it, the, the top would still be one, but the, it would go left, two, three, four, five. So one and six <laughs> yep, would be exactly. in the same spot. I think that's a brilliant. Now I think once we get responsible enough to make t-shirts, the next thing we need to make is the clock that goes counterclockwise. <laughs> I wonder how hard that will be to explain to whatever dropship manufacturer we contact. No, 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 no. The clock needs to be counterclockwise. <laughs> Awesome. All right. Well, I think that was really successful. That was a really great uh, segment idea, Arthur. It went a lot better than I, I thought mm-hmm. it did. And I think it'd be fun to not only come back to Matt, but we should probably do other players too. Like what would this player do? Matt's certainly the Jesus yep. in this situation. Like what would Jesus do? What would Matt do? That's certainly what I think about all the time. Um, but we'll do it with other players too. Just spread Spread the love a little bit. Okay. So our last topic for the day is... We are going to do a whole series on routine building and all different aspects of it. But we're going to start at the beginning. And even though these two topics seem like they would be very short, I think they might end up taking us a little bit longer. So today we're going to talk about (laughs) picking partners and then we're going to talk about picking music. So let's start with picking partners. Ryan, what are your first thoughts? So my first thought is it's, Feels like, I think people intuit this, like asking someone out on a date. Mm -hmm. It's like picking your significant other. And I think there's a lot of parallels and everyone internalizes it that way. And it can sometimes be really scary. 
I mean, I think it's a, it's even worse than that. It's like picking prom dates where there's a set date and everyone's looking for their partner for this date. And so not only do you have all the anxiety of basically asking someone out, you have the anxiety that someone else has already asked them and you don't already know that they might be waiting for someone better than you to ask them. There's all the normal high school prom drama of picking partners. So I do think you're right about that. And maybe we can provide some people with some comfort on that. But like just in general, what's your advice for dealing with the anxiety about asking people to be your partner from this perspective of it feels like asking somebody out? I think the first thing is it's totally okay to ask someone over text or Facebook Messenger. Mm -hmm. So you can type out everything you want to say and send it all at once without like a direct personal contact. So I think that's a totally acceptable way to ask someone to play. Like it's a little lower stakes and it's less like the car salesman, right? Like if you're in person and you're putting the pressure on them, it can make them feel really uncomfortable. I think that makes sense. And then kind of like what we said with the GM, how you introduce it can make a big difference to how it goes over. So if you, if I'm assuming this comes up most in the context of you're the quote unquote lesser player and you're asking the better player, it's okay to be like, Hey, I know this is a big ask and you could play with anybody, but you know, I was thinking sometime we could play or maybe at this tournament we could play no pressure. It's like there's lots of words you can use to kind of make the other person both aware that you know it's a big ask, which I think makes you look a lot more respectable, but also gives it gives them an easier out to say, hey, like, I really appreciate it, but I'm not going to be able to play with you. Do you think that's right? Yeah, I think that's a good way to approach it. And what do you think about just the idea of being a new player and asking like imagine MMRs, like we like to talk about MMR, like if we all had number rankings for how skilled we are, and let's say like 10,000 is the highest MMR and zero is the lowest MMR. What's the biggest gap you think it's appropriate to ask in terms of differences in MMRs? Like can a zero MMR rated freestyler ask <laughs> a 10,000 rated MMR freestyler to play? I think that's oversimplifying the problem in real life. And that's like how you would... Uh, write articles to make drama or to get clicks on your news uh-huh. <laughs> headline. But in real life, I don't think it matters. Or there's other things that matter way more. Like, is there is that person your friend? The great Is the greater person your friend? Or have they indicated to you in the past that they want to play? All these other things matter way more than the skill level this difference. This is probably the first time in the history of our relationship where I presented a mathematical model to help guide freestyle behavior and you said no 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 real life is more complicated there's relationships and feelings (laughs) so i think this is a big landmark for the podcast and we and we should note that so i agree and i think friendship is a big motivator to who you play with and you know and this is another topic where maybe we have i don't know what the right word is like bubbled views yeah because obviously we get to play with whoever we want. So maybe our experience is very different than other people's experience, but I basically only play with people who are really close friends. I kind of don't really care how good you are. If we're not really close, I would rather just play with someone I'm friends with. I'm trying to think if there's exceptions to that. I mean, I guess like I asked Zofia to play mixed and we didn't know each other before, but that was a different, I had a different model in mind there of 
trying to mentor somebody. And we obviously became really close from that process. So there's definitely exceptions to this rule, but friendship is a huge motivator for I think mine and other people's decision-making. The other thing to assess is who has the person you want to ask played with before? And that can tell you a lot about them. So if they're someone who only, if they're a top player and they only play with other top players and you're not a top player, that's probably an indication that maybe you shouldn't ask them. But if you're asking like Paul Kenny and you know that Paul Kenny likes to take on projects of making newer players better, then he's a great person to ask. And I want to be careful about how I give this advice because I was the most abusive new player in the history of the sport. And I think it led a lot to my success. So we've joked about, although we should have joked about it more, how I was the worst number one player in the world ever because I was number one in 2013. I'd only been playing for three or four years and I just wasn't that good. But the reason I was ranked number one is because I asked all the top players to play with me constantly and they all said yes and I was always by far the worst player on my team and they carried me to lots of wins and we won. And not only is there a lesson in that of take a chance, ask somebody, the worst thing they can do is say no and you'll be surprised at how often they say yes. But there's another lesson too, which I was talking with Zofia about, which is once you're in the club, you're in the club. So if you're a new player and you play <laughs> with Daniel O'Neill, you're set. If you're good enough to play with Daniel, then the next top level player is going to say, well, hey, they were good enough for Daniel. They're probably good enough for me. So there's a little bit of like, here's another random example. Do you remember like back in the early internet days when someone had a red paper clip or something and they traded it all the way up to like a mansion somewhere. So they just like mm-hmm. kept incrementally trading from paper clip to like <laughs> yeah. cars and planes and all this amazing stuff. There's a little bit of one way ratchet. So like every time you play with someone who's a little bit better, you've set a new baseline and now you're able to play with anyone at that skill level and you can just keep working your way up. So once you've just got to that top level, it shows that you're good enough to play with anybody. And I think you can ask people for that reason. Do you think that's right? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and that's also where you can kind of abuse your friends. So like maybe other top players wouldn't play with you, but if you're really good friends with Daniel and then he plays with you and now you're in the club. So you can definitely do that. Now, the other hack here, which can have its drawbacks is top players in general have partners very far into the future. So it's not crazy to say, hey, Frisbeer 2025, can I be your pairs partner? And one, a lot of times, this can cut both ways, but a lot of times it's easier for them to say, oh, yeah, yeah, in two years, fine, whatever. Like, it's kind of like making plans <laughs> a week from now. Like, you you want to do everything next week, but you don't want to do anything tonight. So there's a little bit of that aspect of it. But it's also just practical. Like, if you... I'm sure many people who listen to this podcast have had this experience. If you ask to play with me, I will say I would love to play with you, but I have a notebook list of two dozen names on there of people that I promise to play with that are in line. And I think that's true for a lot of players. And so you have to be a little bit sensitive to that. But if you are sensitive to that, it can help you play with people a little bit outside your skill set. Right, Ryan? Objections? No, I think that's all good. That's like a lot of those uh, tips rely on you knowing a lot about other people, though. Mm. So I think going back to like the high school, 
you can ask friends to help help you pick partners. True. So that's actually a great point. So I can also explain my little red paperclip story, which is I like the first. I'm I'm trying to make sure I get this order right, but the first time I was set to play with a quote top player was in 2011 or actually 2011 2011 so i've been playing for one or two years was not very good and i think maybe paul kenny or someone brokered a pairs partnership with larry imperiale and so i was just like this is amazing (laughs) i'm gonna play with larry i can't believe it i'm not very good at all and then Larry calls me a couple weeks before the tournament and says, actually, I'm going to play with Bill Wright and I'm going to have to boost you. And if I'm just feeling so devastated, I was going to be my big chance. And then he says, but I found you another partner to play in my place. And so I was waiting for him to say like whoever, some new player. And he said, Jake Gothier would like to play with you if you're willing and no disrespect to Larry, but in my head I was like, Oh no, Larry, that's so sad. I guess I'll play with Jake Gothier. Like talk to you later. Hang up, call Jake. Like Jake, like I can't believe it. Like I'm going to play with one of my favorite (laughs) players of all time. And we had a really great experience and I rode that wave so hard. It opened up a lot of doors for me. And the last little aside about that time I played with Jake is at that tournament, I met Dave Schiller for the first time. And he comes up to me and he's like, you've won tournaments before, right? And I was like, heck no, I've never won anything. I've barely been playing. He goes, okay, okay. Here's my advice for you. Ride Jake like a pony. And ride (laughs) Jake like a pony I did and ride many other better players over the next few years. And that was super rewarding for me. But I think that's a great example of use other people to kind of figure out who would be interested in playing with you and kind of let them broker that relationship. And honestly, like reach out to people like me and you, like, I think we'd be comfortable helping people. I was just going to say that, like, how does the better player signal that they're in that place? Because I think I'm in that place right now. Agreed. I think I am too, except I have a built in list of people here that I'm going to play with when they're ready to start competing. But agreed. I think, I think Daniel feels similarly. So I think a lot of the top players from our generation are reaching that stage where we're more interested in helping new players than, you know, continuing to rack up accolades. So like, I wonder if I'll get a flood of requests, but I don't have partners for Medellin even. There you have it. Ryan is, is on the market, but that's all from the context of trying to get the best player possible. But do you think it's always the right answer to get the best player possible? No, I think context matters more. It's like maybe depends what best means. Cause like Paul Kenny may not be the best player, but he will definitely be the best partner and the best experience in a lot of cases. Agreed. So I think there's a couple elements to this. One, the friendship thing is important. I think playing with your friends makes the experience a lot better and makes you play a lot better and compete a lot better. So emphasize friendship if not when you're picking the partner make the effort to become friends like take that trip together spend a lot of time when you're practicing hanging out getting to know each other and use that friendship to help you succeed in competition but 
there's other more practical factors too of it would be a lot easier for me and you to play all the time because we could practice a lot and you know you and me basically don't live near anyone we can play with because not a lot of people are competing in seattle anymore and until my duke freestylers are traveling i don't have anyone to play with so even if there was a better player i'm not saying there is in japan i might be able to play with that person one or two times whereas me and you could put in a lot of time to practice so like a lot of times especially if you're a newer player find your favorite jammer in your community and really spend the time building your routine and you'll probably end up with a better product than what you would have throwing something together the day of a tournament with a better player right yeah i think you have a lot of experience with that playing with daniel in the beginning right yeah so and it's interesting too because dan and i are actually playing for the first time in pairs this year after 10 years in pairs of the world so <laughs> it's kind of crazy to wrap your head around that but daniel and i have not competed in the world championship in 10 years and we've probably only played two or three times at all in the last 10 years anywhere maybe i'm wrong daniel can correct me but but like when we played together and we were both living in new york we could do a lot more with that. Admittedly, our first year, we didn't. We actually built our routine in John Titcomb's backyard, which is a very fond memory I have. But like, there was a lot <laughs> we could do and a lot we can probably do this year because we can see each other. Whereas like Graf and I in 2022, we built our routine at the tournament because we didn't have time to travel to see each other. So, and I think that like really affected us. Like 2019, our routine was much more put together because we had a couple times where we traveled just to practice. And obviously that helped us, whereas this year we didn't. So that's a factor. But now I want to talk a little bit about like top players. So like, what do top players okay. need to think about? Because I think top players succumb more to, I'm going to get the best player I can get and hope for the best. And I don't think that's the right strategy either. Yeah, so... Oh, well, yeah, I'll start go for first. It. Okay, so I think, uh, do you remember the Jam Britannia player cards? Yes. Like, I don't know if they're super accurate, but I think that's a great way to think about players you want to play with because it's not, so when I'm picking a player, I pick someone I can synergize with and it's like the sum of all the parts is like, or like the sum is greater than the whatever. So parts. let's make a video game That's analogy, right? So like this classic okay. menu of video game analogy. So it's like each player has their attributes, clock, counter, throws, catches, moves, whatever. And they get like a star rating for how good they are in that category. Mm -hmm. So what you're saying is if you have lots of stars in categories one, three, and five, you want to find someone else who has stars in two, four, and six, so that you synergize. Yes, I mean, it's more complicated than that in the real life, and you have to know how the other person's strengths and weaknesses, like how they synergize with your strengths and weaknesses, because like different strengths synergize, or like different, like if I throw a lot of spin, does that mean the other person doesn't have to throw a lot of spin? It might not be that simple. Yeah, so this is interesting. So I'm gonna put on my arrogant hat, and I put on my arrogant hat so that people know I'm being honest and authentic. Um, and I understand that I sound arrogant. So I feel like I'm at the point where I, th instead of picking my partners based on that kind of synergy, I feel like I can adjust what I do to help my partner. 
And but like, let me explain it by kind of an example. So I think a lot about the catch percentage of my partner. And if they're really good at catching, then that enables me to try really hard stuff. And like, it's kind of like we talk about like built in drops. Like if I know my partner's going to catch it, I think, okay, I can raise my difficulty level by a factor of three and I can drop it two times because those drops are built in because my partner's not going to drop it. On the flip side, if I'm playing with someone who's maybe not the best catcher, but has a ton of difficulty to offer, I would say, okay, I'm going to tone my game down and I'm going to be their baseline. So I'm going to catch everything that I can so that they can go for their crazy moves. And if they drop it two or three times, it's fine. So like, that's how I think about it. But like when I was a little bit worse, I cared more about having someone who could catch so that I could feel more comfortable and not like I was playing scared, even if they were like a worse player. So I'll use you as an example because it's mean and you're here. So I can be mean to you because you know I love you. (laughs) We had planned to play with each other because we're best friends, obviously. But when we were playing, the way I thought of it was like, yeah, like maybe, honestly, there really weren't better players than you, like looking back. But if I thought that like Graf or Daniel or Matt or Jake was obviously better than you, which I'm not saying they are, it was more valuable to me that I knew you were going to catch everything and that it opened up, not just that it made it me able to try harder things, but it added to my comfort level. It was like, I do not have to worry about my partner so I can do whatever I want. So like I was looking for that kind of synergy and that like, I think about this all the time. There's all this, all the time I think like, oh, I think that player is better, but I'd rather compete with this other player because they're really good at catching and throwing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the comfort synergy is, it's almost underrated, but you shouldn't just be comfortable all the time, like growth mindsets. Like you should play in uncomfortable settings, but like if you're like, Maybe just, I don't know, because we're talking about the pro level players at this point. So maybe it is the comfort. I think the comfort aspect is so valuable at the high level. Well, it's kind of like, this would be my growth mindset explanation for it. So like, let's say there's, I don't know, let's say there's 10 comfort points that are available in every routine. (laughs) If I had to use nine of them just to deal with some lack of synergy between us and then we only have one comfort point to actually play with like we basically paid off nine comfort debt and we have one comfort coin left that's a problem but if all the synergies are lined up and we have all 10 comfort points for us to play with then it lets us like open up so like no matter what there's a certain i have to expend a certain amount to make everything comfortable but the question is am i spending it on getting to really hard moves or am I spinning it on not dropping it so that my partner feels comfortable or something? I don't know. I'm not explaining it very well. But I've, I'm like worried that I'm oversimplifying it because I'm basically saying if you catch it a lot, that opens up a lot of doors for me. Or vice versa, if I don't think you're going to catch it as much, like I'll be the catcher and make sure that you are most comfortable. But I'll give you another example of synergy that I think a lot about with Graph. So one thing that I think is great about Graph is... I think I'm a really good finisher and I'm really good at catching it and catching it with really good catches. But I think Graf is a lot stronger at middle moves. And this is such an underrated skill that not a lot of people have. But 
Graf's third move is always way better than everyone else's. Like all the stuff that for everyone else is filler to like get to the catch is where he shines the most. So for us, that's such a powerful combination because basically like I can throw to him, he can do a bunch of really hard moves, set it to me, and then I can do a really hard finisher. And that's a really powerful combination. But if I were playing with, say, Marco, and we're both really strong finishers, we might struggle more to have the same level of middle move content as I could have with Graf. Yeah, that makes sense. But in fairness, Marco's such a good catcher that he just, your baseline is so high with him because you're going to feel so comfortable. <laughs> I was trying to think of, actually, no, that that goes away from just picking partners because now we're like trying to fix problems in the routine. That's like a later, yeah. a later s- segment of this series. I guess the last one on this is throwing is so important. Having a really good thrower in terms of spin and accuracy matters so much. So playing, and I, I get that this is less of a problem at the top level, but for sure not like th- throw power is obviously correlated with skill as a player but it's not as correlated as most other things because you can be a pretty new player and have an incredibly good throw and you can be a really good player and have a not very good throw i think that's pretty common but when i play with pavel or daniel and they're throwing me 970 rpms it makes a huge difference especially for dealing with bad wind and there might be a better player who is not going to be able to do that. I keep talking yeah. about these hypothetical so better think, players. Like, I don't know if there really are at this point, but <laughs> I can imagine a better player, I guess. I was going to add, so this is like tangential, but let's say you're an up and coming player and you're like, I'm fishing, I'm like trying to go up the ladder or I'm trying to get ratcheting up or I want to make myself more attractive when I'm asking. Like having working on your throw and having a really good throw, like that's probably like the number one. What that's like the best bang for your buck, or like ROI on what you can improve on to make yourself more attractive as a partner. That and certainly catching and catching, yeah, catching almost for a different reason, which is that it's so much more obvious than the throw if you're just watching and not necessarily like paying attention. Mm-hmm. But I asked to play with Zofia because I saw her play at first beer, and I was like, she's catching it. And if you can catch it, then you're ready to play with me because that's all I need from you. Um, But the throw is really important. And we actually worked a lot on her throw while she was here. But I thought about this. like I want to be careful because I'm getting into some dicey topics here. But when I played with Juliana and Mixed, the fact that she could throw as much span as anybody made the biggest difference in terms of playing with her than any other Mixed partner I've ever had. She threw so ferociously that it opened up a lot of combos and co-ops that I've never been able to do in any other mixed routine. And I tell anyone, man, woman, new player, old, if you can throw well, it really changes everything in terms of routine building. Because routines, a lot more than jamming, use that spin. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. Picking partners, I think we covered it. Anything else you want to add to that? No. That All right, now it. for some real controversy. <laughs> okay. That was just our warm-up. That warm was the warm-up. Warm up. Picking music. Why don't you start, Ryan? 
I have like a long list. I don't even know where to start. Can I start with a brief section of therapy for myself? And I think okay. this applies to you too. And maybe you'll, I'm curious if you'll say the same thing. The number of times where I'm starting to play with someone and they send me music ideas and they say, I'm worried these aren't James songs. And it makes me <laughs> so angry because I cannot imagine having played to a broader swath of musical genres <laughs> in competition and in the world championship. I have played to multiple classical songs. I have played to post-rock instrumental music. I have played to jazz. I have played to Latin. I have played to pop. I have played to punk. I have played to everything I can think of except for reggae, which I despise. So I'll, grant, I'll grant you that. And country, which I generally also despise, but I can't, I've never heard a country song as a routine and, and I don't know how well they would work. So moment of therapy, please do not. And th I think this is true for anybody. Like don't assume you know what someone plays to because you remember one song they played to recently and you assume that one song describes the entire musical universe that they're willing to play to. Because I always think there's this selective memory thing where people remember like two songs you play to and they just willfully ignore the other 10 that are completely different from it. Now, I will describe in vivid detail on this podcast what I look for in music, but none of it is genre specific. Okay. okay. Do you feel similarly? Like, do you get okay. annoyed or do people say to you, like, I don't think this is a Ryan song? I probably said that to you, but like, does it bother you? It does yeah. not. Doesn't but it, but it okay, I know where I want to okay, start. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> okay, so picking music is underrated in its importance. So it is so important to pick the right song for so many different reasons. And I think people don't put enough thought into it and they don't consider enough factors when they're picking music. Okay. But it is so important. I completely agree with that. I've said, maybe even on this podcast, there's a lot of times where I see a team and a routine and I think if that were just to a different song, they would have done so much better. Yep. Okay, and let me add, I don't know if this is the right place to say this, but I think it fits in here, so I'll give it a go. I think there are lots of songs that can carry routines and that all other songs, or actually I'm going to make it even more complicated. There are lots of songs that carry routines there are some songs that routines can carry and there are some songs that just don't work. So there's kind of like three categories. Yep. <laughs> and I think most of the time, maybe all the time, at least if you're trying to win, you need to pick songs that carry your routine. And yep. that's like a sale. That's like right? a sale. And what do I mean by they carry the routine? They carry the routine because they cover up your drops. So even though you dropped it, the song keeps the energy of the audience high and it doesn't feel bad that you dropped it. And the song will kind of dictate the structure of the routine because it has obvious sections and obvious breaks. And the song, whether it's a fast song or a slow song, it just keeps the audience really engaged and fits with freestyle. Now let's compare that to a song that a routine can carry. What do I mean by this? This is a song that if you listen to it, it wouldn't be obvious at all to someone like Ryan or me that you could build a freestyle routine to it. 
But if you built the right routine song to it and that routine worked and that's critical, the routine was executed very, very well, then you'd be like, wow, that's an amazing song. And I'll make this extra simple by picking extreme examples. So if you play to Believer by Imagine Dragons, which was our 2017 song, I still think that's one of the best freestyle songs in terms of being incredibly obvious and carrying a lot of weight of routine. I'm not saying it's the best song or it's the best routine song. I'm just saying like, if you're just thinking about a song that carries routine and it is almost like it didn't even, I would say it's we the best. <laughs> basically didn't have to do anything. The song was going to do it for us. That's that song. The song that I've always wanted to play to for somewhat emotional reasons, because it was a, one of my, one of the favorite songs of my deceased best friend is Claire de Lune. I love the song Claire de Lune. We've talked a lot about playing to it. It's one of, it's considered one of the most beautiful songs ever. It's considered a very sad song. It would be so hard to build a routine to that song that held the audience <laughs> because a song like that, as soon as you dropped the disc, it would be awkward silence. It would just be, oh no, things have gone terribly wrong. And some of that is as simple as it's a very quiet, slow, sad song. So the, I, I imagine when I think about doing a routine of that song that it has to be so good and so well executed that the audience is silent in rapture. It's like they're listening to a concert and they, they, they do not clap at the amazing catches because they're just locked in. But as soon as that trance breaks because you dropped it, it's over. And that silence goes from rapture to awkward turtle. So like those are the two <laughs> categories I have in mind there. Whereas again, believer, like you drop it and the big music goes and you hear like a, oh, like you hear like the like, oh no, but like, let's go, let's keep going. Come on guys. <laughs> okay. So that's that. And then the third category is I do think they're just songs that just don't work. And I think, and I actually think unfortunately these songs get picked very often. So I'll give you an example of a song, the kind of song that gets picked a lot that I think doesn't work. It, and I think part of why they get picked is they're like reasonably good jam songs is it's a song that starts out with a beat, goes for three minutes, and nothing changes. It's just the same beat and the same bass line and the same piano part for three minutes. And now that beat might be awesome. And for the first 10 seconds, I might be totally with you, but nothing's going to change about that song. And so the song isn't going to carry you. There aren't any parts. It doesn't have an emotional tenor to it that draws in the crowd. You can't carry the song the song is unchanging. It's not going to lock in the audience where they really have to focus on it. And it's just going to be a little bit flat. And people pick songs like that all the time. So what do you think your 2019 pairs song? What category does that fit into? I don't know. I was picking that kind of on the strength of how I saw it in like Matt and Lisa played that song in Whiff Diff 2011. Also just a put myself out there as a bad person. I think a couple of years ago, I'd asked Matt if that song was retired and if I could play to it. And he was basically like, it is retired. Don't play to it. And I was like, cool, 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 cool. <laughs> and then like three years <laughs> later, I just didn't ask him to play to it. So sorry, Matt. I just really love that song. But I'm actually going to say, I do think it is a song that carries. And the reason is, is like, that's why we won. Like, I think we didn't play very well. We didn't hit our routine but the song was like lighthearted enough. Wait, 2019? Oh, 2019. No, no, no. 2019 was a We Have to Carry It song a hundred times out of a hundred. 
Okay, what were you thinking? I was thinking of, of 2020 or 2022 this year. Okay. No, I'm not going to give Matt credit okay. for the song I played to in 2019. The song I played to in 2019 <laughs> is a song that only I could pick. It's a very obscure band from my hometown, Austin, Texas. Explosions in the Sky. It's called Post Rock. And look up the FPAW 2019, me and Graf. Listen to the song. It is a slow song. It is pretty dark, pretty sad, instrumental and it needed total silence and it basically got total silence and we went dropless and we needed to go dropless but the result was a routine that i'm very proud of it's probably i think without a doubt the routine that i'm most proud of and maybe the only routine that i would show somebody voluntarily so i think is that why you asked like i think that's a great example of a song you have to carry yeah i think it's a very good yeah like exemplifies like the second category yeah so as opposed to believers like you can compare like it's very easy to understand the difference watching those two yeah i think that's actually a great point so go watch 2017 believer and then watch 2019 explosion of the sky and one you can see and one you have to imagine you'll see that in 2017 that when we drop it there isn't that pang of emotion where you go oh no that went wrong it's kind of masked by the ooze and ahs of the crowd feeling the music Whereas 2019, there's no drops, but imagine there were three drops at the beginning and <laughs> imagine just that loud sound of the disc hitting the ground and the total quiet and the awkwardness of it. And you understand what I mean by these two kinds of routines. And now let me inject some practical considerations. I would never have done the 2019 song outdoors. So I think the kinds of routines that need to carry the music need a good sound system inside where people can hear it a lot of times people send me songs where i say it's too subtle it's a great song but no one's going to be able to hear that section or the nuance of it outside on a bad speaker system and so like even things like that i consider a lot of like where are we playing what's the sound system going to be like what's the audience going to be like if there's going to be no audience that's going to change the kind of music I pick because the audience can have a big effect on the emotional tenor of your routine. And if you know there's going to be a big audience and it's outside, you might want a more obvious song like Believer because you know they're going to hear it and you know they're going to respond to it. Whereas Claire de Lune, they're not even going to hear a single note of the song. And if they are cheering, <laughs> they're going to totally blast out the music and you won't hear it. Um, so think about that. Now, what about... Some people think about regions. They think like, okay, this tournament's in Italy, so I'm going to play it too. Overrated. I'm, s Overrated. I'm so glad you said that. I completely agree. Tell me more. Because I don't think hometown advantage even matters at a Frisbee tournament, for one. But I, it's like all the same people are at all the same tournaments. So it doesn't matter like the region. It like... It, I don't think it matters. Like, I don't know. I totally agree. I was having this conversation with one of my teammates for this year who was suggesting some like Colombian themed music. And I said, just because it's in Colombia doesn't mean there's going to be nine Colombian judges or that Colombian judges, ipso facto, I'm not sure if I use that Latin correctly, are going to automatically judge the song better because it's Colombian. Like, I don't think that's obvious at all. 
also like a bunch of other people are going to do it anyways. So it's going to kind of take away from the power of it. But to me, the biggest thing is the world of good music is already so limited that adding artificial (laughs) constraints to what you can pick makes it almost impossible. So I can, I think that almost gets to the, the, what I think is the most important part is you got to pick your music for your audience. Like, there's a lot of songs that I really like and I get fired up by playing to, but I know whoever's listening to it, the judges and the crowd will not. And like, that doesn't matter like where it is or like what region it is, but like I'm picking my music for the per- people who are listening to it that are like, not me. I agree. But I think there's two ways to go there. I generally think about that, but sometimes like my 2019 routine, I thought this routine is for me and I want to use this song for reasons unique to me and i don't care if i'm gonna lose something by doing it and luckily that time it worked out it doesn't always so i do think there's a world where you can say i'm picking this for myself but you just have to accept the consequences that you might be losing out on audience reaction or judges scores for doing that but i think you hit on another thing that i think about a lot which is I tell people, and I'm not totally sure I'm right about this or whether you'll agree with me, that don't focus so much on songs you like and focus more on songs that are good. <laughs> and let me put a little more detail on that because I don't want you to play to a song you don't like. And in a perfect world, you find a song that is good and that you do like. But I think of the I think of routine music as a different genre of music that I like in the context of routines, but I wouldn't necessarily put it on my Spotify playlist when I'm in the car to listen to. Because if you're limiting, again, it's a hard to find music. If you're limiting yourself to the songs that you listen to every day, then it's going to be really hard to find good routine songs in there. Mm-hmm. I was going to mention that routine songs, that's like an all year activity. It's not you find your partner, you decide to play, and then you figure out your music. No, you're like, you're looking for that song the entire year. And when you have like the perfect partner to play, that's when you use it. You got to be searching like all the time. Yeah, I'll add to that. So I, when I find a song that I think is a good routine song, I hoard it just religiously. I won't put it in a video. I won't play it for anybody. I won't have it on the jam playlist. That song is secret. But let me give a bad analogy. It's almost an inappropriate one. But, you know, when you read about drug addicts who are right at the end of the rope and you hear just how every day they wake up thinking, how on earth am I going to put together the money today to scrape together enough to hit get my fix? So you think like, I've already used all the low-hanging fruit and the high-hanging fruit, <laughs> and somehow I'm going to scrape it together today. That's how every year feels like for me finding music for worlds. And after 10 plus years of doing it, I do finally think I'm at the end of my rope. I'm just like, if my partner has a song they remotely like, I'm like, thank God, because I ran out of music a million <laughs> years ago. In fact, there is an Onion article I saw today that said something. The Onion, for those who don't know, is a satirical newspaper with just funny headlines. And the article was something like, 37-year-old man desperately listens to new band trying to like it. So it's like, whatever my new music finding prowess was at 20 is certainly dried up by now. And it's so hard to find good music, but it's that hard. That brings up another good point, though. Like top 40 is top 40 for a reason. It's because a lot of people like it. And that already makes it a good routine song candidate. But it's new. Like every month, the top 40 is a new top 40. And so you're constantly, it's like a 
excellent source. Yeah. Of- and I think a lot of players really rely on that. So like, I think Lisa Hendricks is one of the best music selectors I've ever seen. I don't know if you agree or disagree. And I do know from talking to her that she spends a lot of time just sitting down and saying, I'm going to listen to music today, looking for routine music. I'm going to listen to the top 100 every song and see if I can find routine ideas. And that's kind of what it takes. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, I want to get to like what specific things I look for in music. I'm trying to think if I miss anything. Again, it's really hard. I want to start, I want to hear you explain this one that I know you, I've heard you talk about before, but the time signature of the oh, song. Oh, okay. I'll come back to that. I feel like we should have like a miscellaneous category of like really random things. That <laughs> okay. seem, <laughs> Don't start with the most obscure. This one, that one's really obscure. So I'll come back to that. But one big picture, because I this is something I was talking with about talking with people about lately. This is more like a partner relationship thing. If you're picking music with people and you're rejecting their music, make an effort to explain why you're rejecting it and try to be thoughtful about it rather than just saying, I don't like this. Let's not do it. Especially if you're communicating over text. So you have time to really do that. So I say that because I feel like I've come up with a lot of things that I think are important to routines are picking good routine music and the way i've done that is by every time i reject a song if i don't explain it to my partner i try to explain to myself why do i think this song isn't a good routine song and i think if you do that that's a good way to learn what makes good routine music because you're forcing yourself to actually like think about here are the reasons why it doesn't work rather than just saying oh i don't like it or like it's too fast or it's too slow so to me the number one thing is it should have many parts so if you think about a really simple pop song it might be verse chorus so it has two parts a verse and a chorus that is less than ideal it's not far from what i described earlier where i said the beat starts out and then three minutes later it's over if you only have two parts to a song or even three or even four and they're kind of the same volume same speed same key, same tempo. They kind of have a similar feel, just different words. That is not very conducive to building a routine. And this applies to all aspects of routine building. Variety is key. And I don't mean just move variety, like almost think about it as variance. I want as many different textures, patterns, speeds, keys, tempos, emotions, as I can possibly get. Variety is my friend. So I like for a song that has at least at the bare minimum, verse chorus bridge three parts and hopefully there's some variance between the three parts but even better if i have like four parts intro verse chorus bridge five parts intro verse chorus bridge outro that is amazing next is i don't just want different parts i want them to all have very different feels so putting things in really mechanical terms to make it as simple as possible because especially with music it's easy to get really loosey-goosey and mystical about it and no one knows what you're talking about. I want to have a quiet section and I want to have, I'll I'll call it a climactic section, like a loud, exciting section. And those, and I will fit the routine to those sections. The quiet section will be lower key. I'm not going to be hitting crazy doubles. I might be closer to my partner doing more intricate co-ops. Like I want to work with the music and when the music's quiet, I can highlight more subtle aspects of a routine and when the music's really loud i just want to be pounding the audience with 
high excitement, high difficulty, great catches. So many different parts, quiet, loud. Those are like the two biggest things I look for. And too often I'm just send songs with the verse chorus and nothing else. So I'll pause there. Do you agree with me? Anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I agree. I was going to add something. So like human brains are constantly looking for patterns. And if your song has a lot of different parts and they're diverse, like fast and slow, quiet and loud, when you match, it gives you the opportunity to match your freestyle to that particular part of the song. And like people's brains will pick up on those patterns. I think it's, that's why it's effective. Like that's why you need the variance in your song. Because if you don't have the variance in the song, there's no way to match it and make that pattern connection in the audience's brains. It's like dance. Like if you don't dance to the music, it like doesn't matter what the music, what the song is. It's like significantly more impactful when it matches the music. And if you don't have anything to match, then <laughs> there's nothing to, you're, you're stuck. Exactly. And so now I'll get a little more nitty gritty. And here's where I want to be careful because look, I get that this is so specific. You're not going to find this in every great routine song, but these are kind of, think of them as cheat codes, like things you can look for that tend to be really effective. So breaks in the song are so effective. So either it's the big climax where the music is really loud and then on the downbeat, the one beat, just boom, quiet. That's so easy for the audience to follow and understand. You catch your big note right at the climax. It goes silent. In that silence is the cheers of the crowd. But there's a lot of songs that, and like Believer is a great example of that. Believer has 10 huge breaks. Do you know what the name of that is? Because I was searching for songs that have a lot of them, and I was like, "What is the name of that?" I don't know. You might call it. It's not a. You crescendo. might call it like a drop, like, but sometimes. Yep, it's called a pop drop. That's the that's the name of it. In Believer. okay, there's like a few songs that also have it. Okay, and they're all excellent. great. So let's we have a term now. This is almost too powerful to give away to people because I'm just gonna be looking for a song. Yeah, maybe it's the secret was too yeah, good. So like, <laughs> look for pop drops, but sometimes it's more subtle. Like I love a song where at the very beginning it's basically like one chord on every downbeat. So I don't know if this would qualify as a pop drop because it's not a big climax, but if instead of like a guitar strumming, like do, 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 it's just like do, 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 because it's so much easier to hit something on each chord because they happen so sporadically that it really draws the audience attention to that. So it's almost like scarcity reveals power. So like if you're hitting every beat, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, or even one and two and three and four in, that kind of gets lost on the audience. But if there's only one beat every four beats, one, one, that is something the audience can really latch onto and you can make use of all those and they dictate how your co-op should be split up. Agree, Ryan? I agree. Okay. Now we're getting even nittier and grittier. There are some songs that I love particularly in the jazz and funk genre that <laughs> utilize an upbeat or a non one beat as the resolution point. So this is a little bit technical. So let me explain what I mean. So most songs that we all know resolve on the one beat. So one, two, three, four, one, boom. So you're playing drums, boom, catch, boom, catch, boom, resolve. Resolves on the one. That's really straightforward. But some songs, especially funk songs, will resolve on an upbeat 
or the second beat. And it's really effective for funk and it's really cool, but it totally screws up freestyle. So imagine a similar beat and I'll resolve it not on the one, but on the two, I think. I used to be a drummer, hopefully I can still do this. So like on the two would be like, boom, gotch, boom, gotch. Oh man, I can't do it. Let me think, I gotta do like a fill or something. Boom, gotch, boom, boom, ka. Okay, no one's gonna be able to follow that except for like the rare drummer. But like the point is that everyone is expecting the crescendo to resolve on the one where 99.9% of the songs do, but instead it's resolving on this the second beat. And because the audience doesn't expect that, when you don't catch the disc on the one, their brain like breaks and they think like, oh, they missed the beat. And then the beat actually comes in where you hit it and they've just completely missed that you've done that. Now, a more subtle version of this is maybe the drums and the bass resolve on the one, but the lyrics might be floating over it. And now there's ambiguity over where you should be resolving your co-op. Should you be resolving it where the drums end or should you resolve it where the music ends? And anytime there's that kind of either ambiguity or complexity in where the beat is resolving, it can make it much more difficult to fit your freestyle to the music in a way that the audience can understand. Ryan, are you following this at all? Yeah, I think... Your music has to be obvious. Is that what you're getting? That's at? what I'm getting at. Like it has to be. But obvious. I'm trying to like explain why it's not obvious. <laughs> okay, I see. Um, and like, I guess it's just like be careful with multi-layered music where it's not clear where the beat is. Like, if you can't count out the beat to yourself, that's a problem. Like, if it's a song where you can't anticipate what's going to happen the first time you listen to the song, your audience is not going to be able to anticipate it either, and that's a problem. So let me do one more nitty gritty and then I have a couple more big topics to ask you about. So you asked me, I have a theory about time signatures. Now this is tinfoil hat theory. I have no evidence for this. It's just anecdotal. I have a theory that songs in 6-8 are a lot more effective for freestyle than songs in 4-4. So 4-4 is 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and and 6-8 is 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. Now it's a little, if you're not familiar with music or like that makes no sense to you, I'm not going to be able to explain it really precisely here. But 6-8 music tends to have a little bit more flow. It's built off of threes rather than twos. So it's circular and something about it just seems to match freestyle better. And it's also a little bit more relentless. Like it, everything leads into the next thing. There aren't these like big like stopping points and that, and my mind seems to help freestyle. And I did a very unscientific review of world's winning routines at some point. And I noticed or hypothesized that a disproportionate number of them were in six, eight. So that's my theory. I always thought it was because the one is stronger than the other two. So you have like a strong one and then you have like two down. I don't know what it is. Tempo. And then you have a strong one. It's like, it might also be something weird, like some kind of third variable. Like if you're doing a song in 6-8 instead of 2-4, I can't remember what that's called, 4-4. Four, four. Wow, that's a weird little moment. Um, if you're doing a song in 6-8 rather than 4-4, four, four, you are already making something a little bit more thoughtful and complex. I have no idea. Like that. that's just, I've, <laughs> I really have no idea why. And maybe I'm wrong about that. And it's just imaginary because there is a certain parity or symmetry like you can turn four four into six eight and vice versa without much effort so it's not exactly obvious why it should be but that's one theory i have 
Okay. okay, a couple of grab bag questions. How do you feel about whether there's extra value in playing to songs that are familiar to people? Like overrated, underrated, or properly rated? Hmm. I think, no, it's, it depends. I don't know. I think properly rated. I think there's, that's like not the most important thing. There's something else that matters more. Like, is it a good freestyle song? Matters. Like, I don't think it contributes. It's like, if you were, oh, I know how I describe it. The familiarity of the song doesn't correlate to like how good of a song it is. That makes sense. So I was going to say it's overrated, but maybe for similar reasons. I think overrated. Yeah. That's yeah. I mean, because I've definitely played with people like Paul, for instance, and it's, you know, funny to pick a fight with him here because he's obviously maybe most famous for being an incredible routine builder, but I, he really likes playing to songs that are familiar to people and I don't like it one because I think it goes to my limited universe thing. It's like, it's already so hard to find a perfect freestyle song. If you limit it to the 500 most popular songs ever, that's not a big enough group of songs to find a routine song in. That's one. And two, I think it could become cheesy and I don't like cheesy in routines. Like Ilka and I have been talking about this. Like she actually kind of likes it. I think that's valid. There's, I can't come up with any good reason why it's bad to be familiar. And like cheesy is the word she used, but she's German. So maybe she has a different feel for it. Um, but I don't want the song to be distracting. And sometimes if it's a really popular song, it can distract from the routine rather than help the routine. But I think why I think it's overrated is that I don't like it when my partner limits us to songs that are familiar and when I think about the songs I've won to, I would say almost none of them would have been familiar. I mean, some of them, some of them were pop songs, but so like they were at the beginning of. Yeah, but like I played the "Thick as a Brick." That was my first world title. Don't think that's a well-known song outside of Deadheads in the United States who are boomers. I played to "Blue Danube." That would be a popular song, but. It's not popular in the same way that like My Way by Frank Sinatra is. It's more just like, it's a classical song that you've probably <laughs> heard in your life. I played to Believer. That was a new song in its journey. I played to Woman, Woman, not even a pop song, also new at the time. I played to River, not like a new song, also not really even a pop song. Not that popular. Yeah, I think only one person had told me like, oh, I love that song after we played to it and no one else had heard of it. In 2019, I played to a very obscure song, not pop, not a pop song by any stretch, probably has like <laughs> less than a million listens on Spotify. And Juliana and I played to Fred Astaire, not a very well-known song. And 2022, I played to a 70s song that's kind of well-known, I guess. And then we played to two not very well-known songs, neither of which is a pop song. Besides maybe Hold Back the River. I'm so out of sync with what's popular that I wouldn't even know if it's a pop song. But like, none of those songs are the kinds of songs I'm thinking of here where it's like Bohemian Rhapsody or like mm -hmm. Frank Sinatra or whatever. Now, Bohemian Rhapsody actually is objectively an amazing freestyle song. So that's kind of the exception that proves the rule. But... I don't think audience recognition is that important, especially if you do everything else we said. Like if the song is so obvious that people can anticipate what's going to happen ahead of time, then you're good. And let me add a quick story about that. So when I was in middle school, my best friend Adam and I had a middle school band and 
when we would make up songs, we had what we thought was, we had something that we called the vibe. We were 11, so cut us some slack for the corniness of all this. And we were like, we like get each other. We're like telepathic because we always know when to end the song, even though we've never planned it out. Now, now that I'm a grown up, I know the reason we knew when to end the song is that we grew up in the United States of America and we understand that parts of songs are in four increment units. And so like when we played something four, eight, 12, 16 times, we knew it was kind of time to end it. So like, that's why you don't need an obvious song in freestyle because everyone has internalized the rules and patterns of music. And if you play to a song as almost every song does that follows those patterns, the audience will understand what you're trying to do, even though they've never heard the song before. That all makes sense. Okay, so we hit song familiarity. We hit the parts of song. One other thing I want to talk about is player enthusiasm. So I sort of mentioned before that I think it's not necessarily you don't, it's okay if you don't like the song, but I, have to, I tend to think of it as like you have to think of routine music as a different genre of music that you're listening to for a very specific reason. So don't get too caught up on whether you would want to listen to it or not. But I do think there are times where you might not like the song that you're playing to. And so I guess what I want to ask is, under what circumstances would you play to a song that your partner really believes in that maybe you don't believe in? Or like, what is your... <laughs> That's fine. I was going to ask the same question. Okay, so what is, what's your answer? If you weren't. So I have very strong opinions on this. And I think it comes from how I see it work in the dance world. And in the dance world, there's a choreographer and they have total authority over everything. Yeah. And I think... I mean, I've talked about design by committee and how I don't think that works to make the best product a lot mm -hmm. of times. And I think a lot of routines are designed by committee because there's two or three people. But I think it works better if one person is like, I'm going to pick the music or no. Yeah, I'm going to pick the music and this is how the routine is going to fit to it. I think that makes the best product. Okay, let me digress for a second as I want to do and interject a little bit of philosophy into this podcast. Cause I want to explain your idea about how I'll say decision-making by committee is not always the best. And I think this is an important point to make because most of us grew up in Western democracies in this sport and we're all about equality and making decisions together and everyone's a full partner. And Sometimes that's not the best thing to do, especially in routine building. And now we're going to sound like tyrants. So let me give you a story from Herodotus, who I'm pretty sure this, I'm like 99% sure this is from Herodotus, who was a Greek philosopher. And he wrote this giant book called Histories. And it talks about a bunch of stuff, some of which was probably made up. But he tells a story about the emergence of a new, what do you want to call it, state. And they have to decide how they're going to be ruled. Democracy autocracy or oligarchy and the argument that's made is that or the way they frame the question is let's imagine the ideal version of each system so the you have the perfect autocrat the perfect oligarchy and the perfect democracy and their analysis was well the perfect autocracy is the best because they can make the decisions the most quickly they don't have to come to any consistent consistency and they're going to make the best decisions that ever every time and so they decide on autocracy so i think of this a lot of the time because we're so 
I'm just sound like such a fascist here. I'm obviously like a huge believer in democracy, especially in our country where it's been a little bit under fire lately. But I'm just saying there are some situations where you need to, sometimes it's best to cede power to somebody to make a decision. And sometimes the best way to do that is for you to be the one to cede power. So I think a lot of times people get really caught up in the music decision about everyone having equal say and being equally happy with that decision. In doing that, like Ryan says, not only sometimes it just doesn't work very well because like someone's going to have to compromise to some degree most of the time, but a lot of times it leads to a worse choice. So there is probably a better choice that one of you would have selected, but because you're looking for so much buy-in from each other, you end up with a worse choice. That's not always true. Sometimes the fighting is what gets you to the best song, but I go in, especially now where I've won enough, I don't need everything to be about my vision that it's a lot easier for me to just say, if you believe in the song and I don't hate it, I'm going to play to it. So if I think back 2022, I picked the Paris song mostly because I, we didn't have time to decide. Uh, <laughs> in co-op, I'd say Pavel picked one song and I picked the other song, but that's because I'd heard someone else use it. 2019, those are all mine. Fine. 2018, 2017, you pick those songs generally. Mm -hmm. um, and in co-op, I think co-op, like Randy picked our song, but it was like a song that I liked and he knew that somehow. 2014, Paul picked, or sorry, 2014, I picked. 2012, Paul picked. Like I've kind of been all over the place generally. I would say less, either at most like half the time or less than half of the time I picked the music. And and also when I when, like worlds that I didn't win, like Marco picked our music. So my general rule is like if someone is really fired up about a song and they can sell me on their vision for it, meaning like not even that they sell me on their vision, that they sell me on their excitement about it and it's not reggae, I'm like, okay, like let's do this. <laughs> like maybe I'll push back to say, here are some other songs. If you still believe in your song, let's do that. But I'm not very autocratic about it. I think it surprises people. Like, I don't think Edo or Ilka would be uncomfortably saying this. I think both of them were like kind of surprised when we were picking music for 2023 that I was like, that song's great. Like, if you like it, let's play to it. And, you know, that's kind of been, kind of been that. Yeah, I think it goes back to how we talk about picking partners. The comfort factor is so big. It's like when it comes down to who has the power like that comfort factor, that's where it matters. Like that's where it pays off. Cause it's easy to pick. Like I always try and figure out my role in the, in the team partnership. And it's like, if I'm comfortable with the people I'm playing with, like when I'm playing with you, it's easy for me to know what role I am. Cause I'm comfortable. Yeah. Now. Oh, well, another thing about it is I think basically every time once we've done the routine to the music my partner picked, I get it. If not before then, there's always some point where I'm like, oh, I get it now. Like this does work. Like they saw something, they get it. And sometimes you have to use your judgment. It's like if you're playing with a top player who's been successful, trust their judgment, you know, unless they're just have a reputation for picking terrible music or something. But like if Paul really believes in a song, Paul Kenny, I might push back or I might try to push a song that I really like, but I'm not going to doubt that he has a vision that will work once we put it together. And I think, I think one tip for that is 
when someone sends you their song, you should listen to it loud. Because I think how loud you listen to the other person's song matters. You also probably need to judging. listen to it a few times because I think we all yeah. experience this with the music we listen to personally. It's very rare that I hear a song and the first time I hear it, I'm like, that's a great song. Like, Believer, Believer is a rare example, but usually it takes a few times to hear a song before you start to understand why it's a great song. I mean, that's why the radio has to play the song over and over and over again before people <laughs> figure out that they like it. So I think that's a factor too. So give it a few listens, but that's kind of like another topic about picking music. What are the best strategies for picking music with your partner? Like almost in terms of like conflict resolution, like what do you do to make the process as painless as possible? That's hard. My strategy is send them my music before they send me theirs. You're just trying to get ahead, just trying to get in there. It's a mm -hmm. race, but that's, that doesn't work all the time and it might not yield the best results either. Well, how about this? Like I'm always torn between, should I send them the one song that I really want to do? Or maybe the three songs I really want to do. I always send them the one. Or song. do you send them 20 and say, you know, pick the ones you like? No, <laughs> the one song. So I often do the, I send 20 and I usually regret it because a lot of times they're like, oh, I really like this song. And then I'm like, oh yeah, but I don't really like that song. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> it was on my list, but it, like, I didn't really want you to pick that song. So I, I'm coming around to like, maybe you should just pick, go back and forth, one, 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 until you find one that you can kind of agree on. But I do think if you're using the multiple song strategy, you have to do an old conflict resolution technique that I remember my uncle, who's a lawyer, telling me about when I was really young, which is like one person splits the cookie and the other person picks the side. <laughs> so it's sort of like, I'll give you 20 songs, but you pick five and then those other 15 are gone, you know, like however it is, but it's sort of like one person creates the base and then you let the other person like pick from that and what they say goes. And I think that's helpful. Now, one other aspect though, that kind of goes back to our picking partners. Do you think there's any strategy in terms of letting the less skilled player pick their music or vice versa? Like, is there some kind of effect where you can use music to balance out skill level i no i think it's the other way it's like paul kenny should pick the song when he's playing with me and you back in the day like i think that's the best way to pick i it. tend to think that too i was just kind of nervous to pick that because it sounds very privileged and arrogant that that's what we get to do but there are times where some like let's say it's a hat tournament and I'm playing with some like totally new player and they're really pushing their music on me. And I'm kind of like, really? Like, I don't think that's a good song. And like, I'm pretty sure I could <laughs> pick a song that we could win with right now. Um, doesn't happen very often, but, but that's less about the song raising someone's skill level and more like just trust the better player, trust that the better player has a better music choice. But there's, there's one other yeah. factor here, and I'm not going to name any names, but I have some specific names in mind. There are some top players that I think are really crippled by their music choices. I think that's true. And if that's the case, you so, would want to be careful with them specifically about like, I don't know if we should use your music choice. Yeah. I'm just trying to think how you would explain that to them, though. I, I Because think, that's one of those things where you only need one good song picker on the team. That's like where the synergies do... A, work if like you have one person that's good at picking songs and other everyone by else the way that's such an important factor in partner picking 
it's at least for me it makes my life easier because like i said i'm like the drug addict at the end of his rope like i'm out of music like it's so it's so much harder for me to find music that i like and want to play to so when i know someone's a really good song picker i'm like oh, thank god i'm playing with them they'll just pick some awesome <laughs> song that we could play to and i don't have to listen to the spotify top 1000 for the next 60 days looking for music so i think that that's a really big factor Okay, one of the things we haven't talked about, and I, I think I'm running out of things on the music topic, I have a view that I think no one else agrees with, so I'm probably wrong about it, but a lot of people, in my opinion, play to songs that are too fast, and I've gotten criticized for playing to songs that are too slow, so maybe I'm on the wrong here, but here's my take on that. Freestyle is really slow. Like As someone who edits a lot of videos, you realize that the flight of the disc the lift of the wind, whatever it is, gravity is slow. And so the disc can only move so quickly. No matter what you do, no matter how good you are, the disc is the limiting factor for how fast you can move. And a lot of times people pick songs where it is too fast to perform co-ops and the necessary time. I know. I was thinking, what is the fastest Frisbee move? And is there a faster Frisbee move than the Matrix? No, there's not. And like that... If you compare that to like the average dance routine, that's like the average speed of like a normal dance routine. So like any, like the fastest you can song you can pick is like the average song. And I wish I could give you like a beats per minute. I've never done my calculus, but the number one thing people say when I send them my music choices is they're like, they're too slow. And I was like, okay, but I think whatever you're about to send me is probably going to be too fast and we're going to feel very rushed in the routine we're going to have to make sacrifices to fit the routine to the music because and i think people like fast songs for the emotional feeling of them not because they're thinking ahead to the frisbee content right they're just like this is an upbeat song that's going to yep. keep the audience engaged which i totally understand we just talked about how important that is but at the end of the day if you can't perform moves in that time frame. It's it's worse for you. And by the way, the mistakes are costlier because when you get off, when you have that drop in the middle of your co-op, by the time you get it back, you're deeper into the music than you want to be and it's hard to get back on. Yep. And some of that might be that like the slower songs get closer to songs or the routine has to carry the music rather than vice versa. But at least when it comes to the speed of the song, that's a sacrifice I'm willing to make because I want to feel like I'm moving at the natural pace of the disc. And I have a feeling, and I don't know what the right way to do this is, like if you analyzed all winning routines or you analyzed like execution scores or even looked at, and this is obviously, it would be a tiny sample or like a very selected sample. Like if you just looked at like songs I've used in Frisbee videos, which I use because the co-ops tend to end on the beat, which is always a magical thing that I'll talk about in a second. I bet you it's a pretty narrow range of beats per minute or at the very least, like mm. you can have it or double it and you get to the same range, you know? Yeah. But here's my point on the timing of it. One thing that's, I think almost miraculous about freestyle, but it tells you something about how musically or rhythmically oriented we are as a species. Whenever I film freestyle, no matter who the players are, I put it on my computer. I cut up all the catches and then I pick some song I like, and then I start just putting the co-ops onto the music. And depending on how serious I am about the video, I try to make sure the music lines up as best I can to the freestyle moves. And 
nine times out of 10, seven times out of 10, I'm always amazed that the throw happens on the first beat and five co-ops later, we're catching it on the downbeat. Like it's incredible how often even long sequences of freestyle will line up with the beat of a reasonably good song. And it's good. I wonder if that's just probability being unintuitive and it's just like, it's common. It, like if you were to calculate it, it just happens all the time. It could be, but it also seems very likely to me that we, I mean, we have circadian rhythms, we have body clocks, like we have ways that we time ourselves. But let me give you an even better example. Like a lot of times I'll switch out the song for a new song because it turns <laughs> out like the other song was too long or too short. I put the new song in and maybe I change like one part of the beginning to like re remove it and then suddenly everything still works. So again, that could still be probability explaining that, but in my human brain looking for patterns, I find that freestyle lines up a shocking amount of the time. Because I think part of it is people always, on the rare times people notice that I try to line up <laughs> freestyle to the music, they're like, oh my God, how long <laughs> does it take? It must be so hard. I'm like, not long at all. <laughs> it is generally incredibly <laughs> simple to do. Um, cool. Anything else on music we didn't touch? Nope. That was my entire... Oh, no. I was going to talk about cutting music. Oh, you're right. I have views on this too, obviously. Okay, go. Okay. I think the first thing I was going to say is it's much easier to make a song shorter than it is to make a short song. A hundred percent true. I was going to say the same thing. So let me add to that. So going back to the having multiple parts things, if you have a longer song, it's probably... It's more likely to have more parts. Because you're not going to have a 10-minute song that's a verse, chorus, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, unless it's Don McLean's American Pie, although it does have a bridge. Um, a 10-minute song is probably going to have five or six sections, and now you can do a beautiful thing, which is you can cut it from 10 down to three, and you can just use the one time each of those six sections happen. So one thing I notice a lot in songs when I'm trying to make them for freestyle is that verses are too long, and let's just stop there. Verses are too long. So if you think about a verse, maybe they sing four lines and those four lines take 45 seconds. So that's 45 seconds. Let's say that's like a fourth of your routine where it's the same beat, same tempo, same pattern, same everything. That's a huge waste. If I need to cut the song shorter, I'm going to cut that verse in half. So now it's 20 seconds and I can get to a new section and add more variants. So going from long to short really can improve a song a lot. And a lot of times when I send people music, I kind of have to sell them on that. I'm like, hey, this song is 10 minutes. You're going to listen to it and you're not going to like it because it's too long and it's 10 minutes. But trust me, if I cut that down to three, it's going to be amazing. And if I really believe in the song, I'll cut it down to three at the beginning. So like my 2019 song, that's probably like a 15 minute song that I cut down to three minutes. And once it's down to three minutes, it's a really effective song. The opposite is really bad. Songs two minutes, you need to make three minutes. You're just going to repeat 50% of the song twice. Really boring. I've done it before. I think I did it this year in pairs, but we were pretty desperate. So that's what we did. Don't want to do that. So I totally agree. Longer song cutting to shorter is better. But by the way, it's really hard to find songs these days that are long mm -hmm. enough for routines believer is under three minutes yeah and i think it was hard river we actually did get extend to, it or did we have to extend river yeah, we, too we shortened, okay, we shortened river. river cool i was gonna say one thing 
people should learn to cut music. Like everyone should do it. It's free. You can download Audacity for free and it's pretty easy. It's visual and it's, yeah, you can just experiment. We should make like a video. And I think it teaches you a lot about music. Yeah, well. we should make like a video tutorial. That's another good way to pick songs. If you can look at the waveform and it's exciting, pick that song. Like if there's lots of peaks yeah. and valleys, then you're in pretty good company. But if it's just one solid line across, it's probably not a very good song. We could do a whole, we should do a YouTube video on cutting music. But um, the big thing is to oh, like line things up in places that are going to be cut. So like overextend the two tracks so that you can line up the beats and make sure they're exactly dead on. Look at the waveform. And then also a big music cutting thing. Don't cut on the downbeat. It's like a lot of times people cut. Sometimes you have to for sure. But a lot of times people cut on the downbeat. So it's like there's a big climax and then one, two, three, four, one. They cut on the one. Here's the problem with that. Your brain is focused on the one. There's a lot of things happening sonically on the one. That's when the bass drum and the cymbal and the bass and the guitar are all doing something. And so the brain is going to pick up on that cut that you put there. Instead, find that like little bit of space in between the three and the four and make the cut there where like nothing is happening. Like my biggest thing is I don't want to make a cut on a drum beat if I can because drums are very short, like a loud snare drum or a loud bass drum. And so like putting short loud things at the cut makes the cut more obvious but if i'm doing quiet long things like a long drawn out guitar note it's better also you don't want to cut in the middle of a vocal because the words will usually be different anyways that's that's like a whole nother talk but what about <laughs> if you had to choose between having one song or having multiple songs what do you prefer I've gone back and forth, but I've settled on the one Me song. Me too, Ryan. We're doing a very bad job about disagreeing. So tell me why just one song. <laughs> I think it's easier for one to choreograph. To. Yeah. And it just feels nicer. Okay. Now that I'm thinking about it, I don't have like a pre-made reason. I just like intuitively gone that direction. I don't know if I have a good pre-made. I don't know if I have a good reason either. I like thinking in real time. I think one usually the transitions people do are really bad. It's like sometimes there's just not a good way to trans transition between the two songs. Two, part of why you can't transitions between, transition well between the two songs is that a lot of times a good transition takes time and it's time. The momentum. I think that's a big part of it. It kills the That's momentum. true. You basically have like a pause because usually it's like a quiet transition. It's either, yep. whatever. It's usually quiet and it takes time and it kills the momentum and it's a break that you can't afford, especially in shorter yeah. routines. It's not a mess. Because I think what people think of is mashups, where like a producer comes in and they take two songs and they like blend it in a way that it works. They're like, we're not going to put that much time in. Yeah. That. Also, maybe I like it less because it's usually the product of a compromise. So it's two people who couldn't agree <laughs> on music. So they each did their song and they put a terrible transition between the two. And so you just have two mediocre songs that are crammed together. Um, but part of it may be that like routines are maybe a little bit too long for one song, but they're a little bit too short for two. And that's just the way it is until it's two and a half minute routines. You would, you want, you want one <laughs> minute routines, by the way, this is an aside, totally irrelevant. So when we got married, we had our first dance and I was very nervous about this because I don't dance and the idea of all oh, my friends and family watching me dance was mortifying. 
and Margaret and I picked a song that meant a lot to us, Beyond by Leon Bridges. It's a four minute song. And the whole time we're dancing to it, I'm like, shorter routines, shorter routines. Like four minutes is too <laughs> long. Um, but luckily the DJ was wise enough to start the song for about 30 seconds before he called this out. So we did what we could to shorten it, but I was definitely having the, oh man, Ryan's so right about how long routines are when we were dancing for three and a half minutes in front of everybody. <laughs> it was a solid song choice. Yeah, I thought it was good. I was going to comment on, but I forgot. Yeah, there, I, there was a lot of routine building analysis into our music choice for our first dance, for sure. <laughs> um, okay, so it sounds like we don't have a great reason for why we think one song is better, but maybe that, maybe, well, we need to have like a whole stats episode where we we do some off-air analysis of all the winning routines from the last 10 years and see what we can find out about them. Like, I would bet you a disproportionate <laughs> number of them are to one song, for instance. Like, I do think that's true. Yeah, that just might be for ease of use or ease of cut. Could be, yeah. I, that's a harder one to know it's disproportionate. Like, it's easier to figure out if there's more 6-8 songs than on average. But, yeah, we'll have to think about that. Okay, well, once again, we broke the two-hour mark, but I think we did our job. We're the number two yeah. podcast in Norway, so we can afford to go over two hours. It's working for us. <laughs> yep. Okay, cool. Well, with yeah. that, thank you for listening. Subscribe, like, comment, follow, wherever you get your podcast. Send us your questions at clockorcounter at gmail.com. Is it clockorcounter? I already forgot. Clockorcounter at gmail.com seems right. Yep. We do, as you can tell, read the questions. Send us your segment ideas. We'll do them. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.